Go. Outside, divide. You are my portion, O Lord. I have promised to obey your word. I have sought your face with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. I have considered my ways and turned my steps to your statutes. I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. Though the wicked find me with ropes, I will not forget your law. Midnight I rise to give you thanks for your righteousness. I am a friend to all who fear you. All who follow your precepts, earth is filled with your love. Oh Lord, teach me your decree. Wow, huh? Wonderful. For some reason, I have mercy. Mercy. Pointing to love. Yeah, I don't know because in my version it says mercy, oh, well, and that's why you did that. Okay, let's see what we have here. We've got uh, somebody I brought up before is still in severe pain. Her name is Janae. And she's got surgery on her wrist. She's one I mentioned a couple months ago, or maybe a month ago. She's got fused neck bones, and she's just she's in bad shape right now. She's got surgery on her wrist on the first of November. She's got other pains and trials with workman's comp, not being able to work. And I mean, it's just she's having a tough time. So we want to keep her in prayer. And then our Nance, most of you know her. She's been here a couple times from California. She lost her mom this week. Oh, we want to keep her in the family in prayer. And then we got our friend King out in Texas. He says hello to the church. He wanted me to make sure everybody knew that that uh, he's a good guy. He's a, he's a cop out there in Texas, and he's always sending uplifting emails to me. So we got that. And then I got a letter today, and because we're in Bible class, I thought I'd read this to you instead of the uh, This Day in History. It's just a short one. They said I could read it. So, uh, dear Charlie, when I was nine, a Sunday school teacher asked us if we would die on the cross for Jesus. The question shocked and horrified me. It was a soul-crushing moment, for I knew instantly that I would not. I knew Jesus knew I would not, and I was shamed to my core. He was as real and watching, and I unable to compound this sin by pretending that I would. I didn't raise my hand, understanding that I would be shunned by the other children. I was also convicted that Jesus could not love me for this. I was sent off every Sunday alone by an overworked single parent. When my mother caught me hiding from going the following Sunday, she spanked me and made me walk to church. I didn't think about Jesus after that, and eventually becoming an atheist was a relief from shame I could not bear. When I, met an when I meet an atheist now, I wonder what pain and loneliness they must be in. Heresy is real, and it can ruin a life. Bad theology is devastating. This is very hard for me to talk about, but you may sh share the story if you think of any use, just no names, which I won't give the name. The pains you take to tell us what the Bible says means more to me than most. Bad, stupid, or simply unwise comments about Scripture drives me crazy because of my own ignorance, and I know the harm it can cause to others. I've learned so much in the church that has made me stronger and more confident. This is the freedom that the truth brings. I have far to go and I look forward to tonight, which is today. And then this person says blessings forever. So, you know, when you get an email like that, I almost couldn't read it at first because, you know, it's almost overwhelming. And when we talk about the Bible and when we analyze the Bible, the one thing, and I say it week after week, is that I hope that if I say something wrong, 
that the people of this class will find out that I said it wrong and not listen to what I said, because the one thing I do not want to do ever is to misrepresent the word of God. That's one thing I simply do not want to do. If I don't know, then I'm not going to address that particular issue. I'll give an opinion, maybe something like that, but I'm not going to say anything dogmatically when I know that it's not correct. Uh, sometimes I'll be practicing my sermon and I'll think, you know, I, I need a probably there or I need a maybe there because I don't want people to think, oh, that's what that means in the complete and ultimate sense when it may not be that. And so when you hear me say a probably or a maybe during a sermon or when I'm doing the Bible class, you know that I do not want to mislead anybody. I'm so thankful for this person that feels the same way, that the word of God is to be cherished and it's to be upheld above all things. Nothing is more important than our relationship with God. And the only way that we can have that relationship with God, despite what people think about or say about having visions and talking with Jesus in their, their you know, uh, whatever, I, this is it. The word of God is where we get our doctrine from. And so I just want you all to know that I appreciate emails like that because they help me to refocus as well. It's just, it's something that really, you know, it, it just does. So we're going to get into, oh no, we're going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, class. We've got just a few people here today and maybe some more will show up after uh, they get into their car and get here. We know that Pat and Cindy are traveling and we would pray that they would be okay as they do. And uh, they'll be gone for, I think, uh, till next Thursday and then they'll be back. And uh, we would just pray that they'd have a good time and a safe time. And Lord, we just thank you for all of the people that come to this class, that listen to this class, that are uh, intent on learning your word and that want to know what's right and what is correct. What an honor it is to share in your word with other people that feel that way. And Lord, we ask that you bless the people that we've mentioned as far as their physical problems. Darla as well, who's still at home, unable to really get out too much. She's gone to work for a couple hours, but uh, we would pray that you would continue to strengthen her. And uh, also Nance, who's lost her mother, Janae, who's struggling with her own physical problems, and anybody else that I've forgotten to mention that has emailed me in the past week. And Lord, we just thank you. We love you. We love this word. We cherish it. We ask that you uh, bless this time together. Oh, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You burned up last week. We got three verses done last week. Yes, we did. We, we zapped right through it. So here we go. We'll see if we can get at least three this week. We're starting in 1512. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will rise to rule over the nation. Gentiles will hope in him. Okay, very similar. This one says Gentiles twice instead of nations and Gentiles. Usually it's the same word. In Hebrew it is goyim or Gentiles can mean, you know, you'll see uh, the name of a place, uh, Hageshet, uh, Haroshet Hagoyim. And then some translations will say Haroshet of the Gentiles because it means, you know, just, it just you know, it's a, a title and a name at the same time sometimes. Anyway, um, we'll go on from verse 12. Now, that was a quote from Isaiah and the root of Jesse. I'll probably talk about it, so I won't even get into it. We'll just go to my notes and then we'll talk about it. So far in just two quotes, Paul has demonstrated from the Torah, meaning the law, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. Everybody got that Torah? It means instruction, but it's the first five books of Moses. That's also known as the Pentateuch. You know that Penta means five. And so you've got the five books, and then you've got um, uh, also the law of Moses, some people will call it. And uh, 
from the Ketuvim, the writings. So we've had from the Torah and from the Ketuvim, or the writings, that God has always had an intent and purpose for the Gentile peoples, as well as the people of Israel. Today, Paul cites Isaiah, a prophet. So now we've gotten into the Nevi'im. You've got the Torah, you've got the writings, the Ketuvim, and then you've got the Nevi'im, which is uh, the first two letters of each of those is what spells Tanakh, what they call the Old Testament, the Tanakh. Torah, Tanakh, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, Tanakh. Okay, that's where we get that from. It's just a, a what do you call that? And not an acronym. Can you jam three words three, together? No, the first letter of words to make another word. Yeah, and an no, anachronism. An abbreviation. No, not abbreviation. You take the first letter of, Charlie is a handsome guy, C-I-H-G, and that is whatever that is. Anyway, okay. Um, yeah. Oh, I've, I've said it here, and I probably wrote down what it is, but anyway, we'll go on. Um, we've got um, peoples as well as Israel, okay. Um, today, Paul cites Isaiah, a prophet, to make the same point. The prophets form the third section of the Old Testament known as the Nevi'im. Okay, there it is. Here, I should have just read my notes. In essence, what Paul has done is to demonstrate God's purposes for the Gentile people from every section of the Old Testament. Collectively, they are called the Tanakh, an acronym. That's what I was looking for. An acronym comprised of the first letter of each of these subdivisions, Torah, Ta, Nevi'im, Na, and then Ketuvim, which would be the K-H at the end. Hello, how are you? This may seem trivial or without purpose, but it is not. He has woven together these quotes to show that the concept is sure, it's founded in the whole body of Scripture, and thus a principal tenet of God's redemptive plans. One, he selected a quote from Deuteronomy written by Moses, the great lawgiver, and in the book which provides a practical living and instruction for the Israelites who are about to enter the land of Canaan. Two, he selected a quote from Psalm 117. It's the very middle of the Bible. It's the shortest chapter in the Bible. It's a part of the Hallel, or Hallel, which is sang every year during the Passover by all Jewish families. And then three, he selected a quote from Isaiah, the Prince of the Prophets, whose chapters and words form a mini Bible of 66 chapters, often showing interesting parallels to the 66 books of the Christian canon. Whether Paul intentionally selected these quotes of his own will, or whether he did so without thinking of the greater pattern he was forming, the quotes are a perfect demonstration of God's plans and intents for the Gentile church. And so, quoting Isaiah, he says that there shall be a root of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. Anybody know Jesse's name in Hebrew? It's very close. Just turn the J into a Y. Jesse. Close. He's shy. It's very close. You shy is how you would say it. Anyway, um, let's see here. Um, there shall be a root of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was told that his throne would be eternal. Where did he say that? Same. Samuel what? Seven. Seven. That's right. One or two Samuel? First. Uh, yeah, I think it's first. Two Samuel. Is it? Has to be because one is all about Saul. Oh, yeah, you're yeah. right. You're two right. Samuel 7. 14, I think, That's is the verse. Good. Yeah, you got it. Very good. Anyway, and I know that because I've been listening to Samuel in the, uh, as I'm driving around in my car for the past week. So anyway, um, there should be a root of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. David was told that his throne would be eternal. Scripture notes that the Messiah would come from the house of David, thus being the fulfillment of the promise that he was given. Everybody got that? We all knew Messiah was coming from the house of David. That is the root of Jesse. Before we go on, Messiah means... 
Christ, which is Greek, which means in English, anointed one. Okay, there you go. So I just want you to, if I ask, you will remember. If I don't, then you're just listening. So there you go. Messiah is Christ, is anointed one. All right, and what is the symbolism? They take the oil and they either pour or smear it on the person's head. Mashiach, it means the oil, the pouring of the oil, the anointing. All right, so here we go. Um, uh, but this verse from Isaiah shows something different. It shows that there shall be a root, a root of Jesse. Paul's already shown that the root supports the tree and the branches, not the other way around. That was Romans 11, verse 18. Therefore, the root of Jesse isn't speaking of someone after Jesse, but somebody before. A root of Jesse, okay? It is an indication of the eternality of Christ. It's not just that you're going to have a descendant who's going to rule forever. You have somebody that came before you who is going to rule forever. And is that why it's capitalized root? Well, it depends. Some, some translations will capitalize it, some won't. And the reason why, I don't think mine does. Let me see. Um, no, it doesn't. The reason why is in the Greek and the Hebrew, there normally is no capitalization. Now, Greek may be all capitals or it may be all small, but there's usually no, no what we would consider capitalization in those languages, Might especially have, in Hebrew. There's no such. Also. They what? Capital. capital. And it should be because it's speaking of Christ. Now, you talked about this oil. Must have been poured because it said it poured it on Aaron and it ran down, down to the beard. beard. That's yeah. right, to the edge of his garments. That's right. Yeah. So, absolutely. But it can also be a type of smearing onto somebody. That's why I'm saying it's an anointing. It's a process. If they you make have no hair up there like Yeah, if you got no hair like me, it's just going <laughs> to run right off. That's that's absolutely right. Okay, so here we go. It's an uh, indication of the eternality of Christ. And this is similar to the words uh, in the book of Micah, which say, let me take you back to Micah here. And it says, oh, hang on a sec. Um, I don't want to lose this. Let's see here, Micah. Where am I? If you get there before I do, it's chapter 5 and verse 2. Here it is right here. But you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings are from of old, from of everlasting. Okay, from the word olam, goes back to the very vanishing point is where he... What the uh, wise man asked and the, the, the scribes told him that's where it was. Absolutely, it Bethlehem. That's, they went to that verse and they said, he's going to come from Bethlehem, 100%. Can we help you, ma'am? <laughs> it is this root of Jesse who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. The prophesied Messiah would not just be the Messiah of the Jews, but of all people. This is actually prefigured in the book of Genesis in types and pictures such as the life of Jacob and the life of Joseph. If you watch those sermons, you know that every single time a new character is introduced, he's probably going to picture Christ. And in some ways, that's all he does. I mean, Joseph, his whole life, everything he does pictures Jesus, Jacob as well. He, well, he would be there, but Christ would be in the symbolism all the time. They're actually very astonishing to look at these things and to, to see Jesus again and again and again popping up in these Old Testament pictures. And perfect pictures. When you read the words and when you study the Hebrew, all of a sudden the pictures come out. They are really astonishing. So um, uh, let's see here. These and many other quotes from the Old Testament were missed, and they were missed by the Jewish people concerning the Gentiles. How do we know that they were missed? Because they're still missed today. They still do not exempt the, accept the goyim as part of the covenant promises. They've just completely ignored all of these verses that uh, say that, and it's all about Israel, it's all about them, it's all about, and I'm not trying to slam Israel, it's just 
the truth, okay? It's a fact. The Jews think that they are the bee's knees and the cat's meow and that they are in right with God, kind of overlooking the last 2,000 years of punishment, right? And that the Gentiles have no real value or purposes in God's redemptive history. That's completely wrong. It's all the way through the Bible. And that's, once again, that takes us back to the problem with the Hebrew roots movement. All they do is they keep going back and they look at the Old Testament. They say how much better all of these things were when, in fact, they never could bring about satisfaction. They were completely misused by the Jewish people. They led to Christ. Christ ended them in his blood, and yet people still want to go back to those things. And what do they do along with it? They add in all of the traditions of the Jewish people, things that are not recorded in Scripture, and they use them in symbolism about Christ, which is completely inappropriate, and they come up with all kinds of false readings about what is coming in the future. They say, well, this in Jewish culture points to this, and so that means that Christ is going to come back and this is what it's going to be like, when in fact it's not at all. But when you get into these things to the point where they have it completely twists what scripture is trying to tell us. So I'm once again, not trying to slam the Jewish people. You know me, I support Israel probably more than anybody I know, but I do it in a sense of understanding that they are not right with the Lord. You get somebody like Hagee out in Texas and he doesn't even evangelize the Jews because he says that they are saved through their adherence to the old covenant. Yeah, absolutely. So you talk about, she meant, this person mentioned heresy that is heresy right there. That is something that you have to call out when somebody teaches that kind of really bad theology. It does nothing but harm people. It keeps people from the saving knowledge of Christ. So we have to look at the Bible. We have to say reality. The Jewish people were under punishment. Why were they under punishment? One plus one equals two. It wasn't because they were right with the Lord. Okay. So um, let's see here. Um, uh, these and many other quotes, yeah, the Jewish people missed it. Instead of realizing that God was using them, meaning the Jewish people, to bring salvation to all people, they couldn't see beyond their own national identity. And Paul's reminding them, and us, that Jesus, it is Jesus who is the hope of all the nations. As Jim so poignantly said one time, uh, uh, when a Jew says, we are God's chosen people, the question that you should turn around and ask them is, for what? Chosen for what? Exactly. If you're God's chosen people, what are you chosen for? Because you ain't doing a very good job of it. You were chosen to usher in the Messiah. And the only reason why you are still here as a people is because God made a promise you. Not because you have been faithful to your promises to him, because the covenant went both ways. They broke their side. He did not. He is going to return to them, but they are going to have to go through the process and the the fire in the process. So when somebody says, well, we're cho God's chosen people, or somebody says to you, they are God's chosen people, you have to say chosen for what? Let them think about it. It was to usher in the Messiah. It was to give him a home with his people when he returns. Okay. So Paul is reminding them and us that Jesus is the hope of the nations. And so he finishes his quoting of Isaiah with, in him, meaning Jesus, the Gentiles shall hope. Hope doesn't even hint at a harsh rule. Instead, it is a term of eager anticipation and even longing. The Jewish people expected the Messiah to come forth, rescue them, and rule over the world from Jerusalem for their sake and for their exaltation. You look at what they say, and that's what it appears in the, from their own mouths, right? Rather, Paul shows that his coming wasn't one of harsh rule over a disobedient people, but one of joy at the reign they would be under. It is true that the church age 
after the church age, Christ will physically return to earth and rule from Jerusalem and amidst his people Israel. But that is another dispensation which will come after the church age. During this time, Christ is our ruler, and in him many Gentiles have placed their confidence, their trust, and their hope. Life application, the whole body of scripture, Old Testament scripture, the law, the writings, and the prophets testify to the work of God in Christ for both Jew and Gentile. Christ Jesus is the hope of all people. Make every effort to pass on the good news to those around you today. That's it. There's no hope outside of Christ. And, you know, I was thinking as I was driving today and you see people that are so satisfied with life and you know some people are into you know we'll just say guys and girls right ah oh, i gotta have every guy in town or i've got to have every girl in town and as soon as you're done you want to do it again there's no satisfaction in it there's no end to it right some people find their satisfaction in a bottle and they drink and they drink and they get drunk and they fall asleep and they wake up and the first thing they do as the proverb says time for another drink there's no satisfaction in it. I don't care what the addiction is. I don't care what the hope is. I'm going to make another dollar today. And at the end of the day, you want to make another dollar tomorrow. There's no hope in that. There's no satisfaction. Who was the guy that said, um, how rich are you? Well, if I wish I had a dollar for every dollar I had. He, he, you know what I'm saying? He just wants to be richer. It, there's no end to it. But in Christ, if you think about it, every person that truly understands Christ, truly understands their position in Christ, They've got everything they want. The only thing they want is to see them more, right? The only thing that it's the only thing that satisfies. There's, there's an end in Christ, but there's no end to Christ. It's not like a bottle where there's an end to the bottle and you got to go get another one. It's completely different, but when you think about it, he is the fulfillment of every single thing that we could ever want. That doesn't mean that in this physical body, and you have to, when people hear this, they think, well, I don't feel that holy thing that he's talking about. I'm not talking about being in this body where it hurts. My back hurts sometimes, right? My knee started to hurt a day ago and it stopped, thank goodness. But maybe it'll go out. And I've got this pain and I just wish this pain would go away. But I know that this pain is going to go away in Christ. There's no end to him. There's no end to what he provides for us. The bottle will take care of my knee for a couple hours and I'll be back up drinking again because I need to get this knee taken care of, right? The doctor isn't doing it. The bottle is. So I'm going to keep doing this. And it just satisfies temporarily. But Christ, when he gives us a new knee, it's done. That's an example. That's an example. That is, that is an, an example. Well, same thing as if I don't say bottle, but I say, you know, what is it? Codeine or what Percocet or whatever. Whatever I take for my pain, it, yeah, I just end up taking another one because the pain comes back. It doesn't take care of it. You what? Knee brace. Knee brace. Well, that's more permanent, but it's still, knee brace is not going to take care of it in the end. My mom's trying to defend knee braces over Jesus. I'm kicking her out of his class. Uh, I'm kidding, of course. Anyway, um, 1513. Oh, wait, did I give a life application? Yes, I did. 1513. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's almost word for word. We're in good shape there. Okay. Believing. The what? It left out what I thought was the most important word. Read, read yours. Mine? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, yeah, you, Freda. Good and loud. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now read yours again. Um, it's well, trust. 
Oh, trust. Yeah. So you say trust, that yours says believe. Okay. So what they've done is they've changed the order of it, and they said trust instead of believe. Okay, gotcha. Because mine, you must have the New King James Version. Yeah, same as me. Okay, so yours reads the same as mine. Okay, good. Believing, trust, but his just had the word order changed. Okay, as Paul does at times during his writings, at the end of a formal exposition on a particular matter, he ends with a benediction before moving on. Have you ever seen him do that? Have you noticed that when you're reading and you all of a sudden he just like stops and he makes like a prayer or a praise or something, and then he goes on to another subject. He's doing that here, okay? This treatise, which really began at Romans 14.1, if you remember, it was all about foods and, and uh, days of the week and all that, and then he's been talking about other things in here which deal in that same line of thought. Um, it uh, Romans 14.1, it's no different, okay? He has gone through several overarching issues with one ultimate goal. He addressed the difference between the weaker and the stronger in the faith. After this, he instructed one to not show contempt for the other. He followed directly with the matter of not judging one over another over disputable matters. He also went on in to implore one not to cause another to sin over such things, okay? Following that, he showed the need to make allowances for another in a Christian manner, focusing on the spirit of bond, the spirit and bond of love. The example for this was next identified, the person and work of Christ who willingly bore reproach. And then finally, he demonstrated that all, both Jew and Gentile, should glorify God together. So that's the logical train of thought. It began in 14.1. Considering this, the length of his epistles, Paul has put an immense amount of time and consideration into this issue. I don't know how many weeks we've been in chapters 14 and 15, but it's been no small number. I guarantee you that. So you know, she said she said it's been seven years. I think that's a little over. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, it is one which should be considered as the highest importance in maintaining fellowship between believers. In hopes that his instruction will take root and be effective, he now makes his short invocation for divine blessing, guidance, and help. He says, now may the God of hope. That's uh, noted by scholars as having two applications. The first is that he is the God who provides hope. The second is that he is the God in whom we hope. It goes both ways. He provides our hope, and in him we do hope. Okay? Just let you know. Yes. April 6th, 2017. April 6th, we started... 13? Four. Four, 14, yeah. no, 14-1, not 4-1. 14-1. Yeah, there's just this little section right here, 14-1. Okay, let me finish up my thoughts, and at the end of it, then let me know. Uh, the God of hope doesn't just provide hope at certain points during our walk, but he provides a continuous stream of it for those who keep their thoughts and minds on him. There's never a moment that the hope he provides is either lacking or insufficient to calm his child in the storm. Two, the God of hope is the eternal God. He isn't just our hope the day that we call on him for salvation and forgiveness, but he is the same God who arranged the universe at the beginning and the one who will be there for his people for all ages to come. No matter what our station at any given moment, no matter what trial we face, no matter what loss we have encountered, he, he is the true source of hope. Nothing in creation can separate us from him, and therefore our hope is grounded in what is eternal. As I was saying, it's funny that I mentioned that because it's exactly what the commentary says as well. Our hope is what is eternal. We don't have to worry about the next bottle. We don't have to worry about the next girl. We don't have to worry about the next dollar we're going to make. Whatever it is that's on your mind, 
that's temporary. That will never satisfy, and it will only bring about dissatisfaction when it's when you've got it in your hand. Once you've got it in your hand, you can say for a second, oh, I, I, I've attained whatever. And immediately you're going to want to go into the next thing. Immediately. We're, that's the way we're geared. And God is always the next thing forever and forever and ever. Everything that we see around us, everything that we uh, experience, everything stemmed from him, and therefore he is the source of it. And it will never run out. He is the next thing, an eternal stream of living water coming out of him. So um, it is to this beautiful creator that Paul makes his petition for us. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. May you be filled with the continuous knowledge that your faith is grounded in that which does not perish, and may that bring you constant and complete joy. It is from this wondrous state that you may abound, as Paul says, in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The God of hope who provides hope and who is our hope is petitioned to bring us to a hope which abounds, and this is, in fact, possible, because he has sealed those who believe with the Holy Spirit the key to unleashing this joy and peace then isn't external, but rather it's internal. We are granted access to it upon belief. The Spirit from that moment resides in all of his fullness in the believer. And that's what makes, and I hate to say this, I don't mean to get down on other Christians, but this is what makes the charismatic and the Pentecostal movement a failure. Because they make God out to be something that is a Saturday morning or a Sunday morning or whatever, Wednesday night, whatever day they meet together. He's a temporary fix to an addiction. That's what he is. It's not the hope that fills us and that is always filling us and always there for us. Instead, they're looking to roll around in church and look happy. And I've said this, the people that call themselves Christians, and I'm sure they are, they love Jesus, but they call themselves Christians on Facebook. They post the first thing on Sunday morning. I'm so ready for church today. I'm going in and we're going to have a great time. And the pastors, you know, they're all excited. You know, people that come to the Superior Word, they might say, well, I'll be at church today. See you there, Charlie, or something. That's about it. But the people, the charismatics will post how great church is going to be. And then afterward, they post about how absolutely wonderful church. We were so filled with the Spirit and people were doing this and people were doing that. And then on Tuesday morning, they're absolutely miserable once again because they're using him as a talisman. They're using him, him as something to get themselves stirred up. Just look, look at their posts. If you have a friend that is a charismatic or a Pentecostal, look at their posts. And you'll see the people that are in churches that study the Word of God, that rely on the Word of God and apply it to their lives in context. On Tuesday morning, their dog got run over, they lost their job, their house burned down, and they're saying, you know what, praise God through the storm. It's going to be okay. And you see the difference between the two. God is not a talisman. He's not a cosmic ATM where we say, I'm going to give to this church and I'm going to get money back. He's none of those things. He is a constant and firm and fixed hope. And when we're sealed with the Spirit, we can rely on that. Let me go back and read that thought again. The Spirit from that moment, from the moment that we believe, resides in all his fullness in the believer. However, the Spirit can, as I've said a million times, get more of the one who believes. This is the state that Paul is praying for. He's given the instruction on how to achieve this. Now, by applying what he has taught, the Holy Spirit can accomplish this condition in the obedient soul. By expecting an external demonstration of the Spirit to come upon the believer, the joy is far too often missed, or it's temporary at best. Only by reading, 
understanding and applying scripture in a right manner will the spirit effectively accomplish his work in us can't do it you know what if somebody is struggling with cancer and they're dying the last thing that they need is to go into church on sunday morning and say i got filled with the holy spirit you know what they need people to empathize with them they need to have the assurance in their heart that they are going to heaven that they're going to spend an eternity in a body that won't have the problems that it's having right now etc 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 completely different attitude and i'm not trying to say these people are not saved there are good people in bad churches there's bad people in good churches this is how it works but when you have people that have their focus on the temporary on what they are going to get from god they're missing the point of all of it our first goal is to glorify god and in that we will also participate in that in a much more wonderful sense all right life application paul's benediction is directed to those who have already believed and have been sealed with the holy spirit they have full access to the power of the spirit already the way to receive the joy and peace is to apply the instructions of the bible as given this is how the spirit works in us filling us as we yield to him be sure to read understand and apply the words of the apostle and you too will be filled with all joy and peace in believing in this state you will abound in hope by the power of the holy spirit good stuff take the word apply the word properly to your life things are going to get bad i'm not ever going to tell you in this church that you're going to be blessed by god and you're not going to have problems as a matter of fact you're going to be blessed by god maybe when you do have problems right that's did anybody here see the i don't probably nobody watched it you post something about um oppression or affliction and most people just give you a like or maybe not watch it all i posted the uh video that uh the black pastor in uh, africa the pastor that got attacked by the muslims and his face was all burned off and anyway you know i mean the guy's able to speak about the lord in a confident way despite what happened to him i mean he was mutilated was this what country was uh which one was it i'm gonna say the wrong country but it's right in my wall i posted it yesterday he so. was from a muslim family yeah and they didn't take too kindly, didn't to, take too kindly to that absolutely yeah well you know what when you when you come out of something like that and you call on jesus nothing's going to shake your faith absolutely nothing all right 14 oh wait go ahead uh 14 chapter 14 yeah, that was uh, August 9th. Okay, August 9th. So August, September, October, uh, two months for two chat. That's about right. That's about right. Good. Freddie, you had something? So, yeah, this, the reason I was making a point over the word believing is because the scripture came up in the yeah, last couple for my of weeks. Ah. And I've been really um, thinking it over. Yeah. And is it saying that the joy, the peace, and the believing, it all comes? It all comes through the Holy Spirit, but you have to believe. And when you believe, you get the Holy Spirit, and then it's up to you. Apply the word to your life. Absolutely. Remember that anytime Paul writes to be filled with the Spirit, it is in the passive tense. It's not in the active. What we have to do is we have to receive it. We already have the Spirit in His fullness, but we He has to come into us by us allowing. And how do you do that? Reading the Word, you're going to understand, you're going to appreciate His work by fellowshipping with other believers, by praising God, by praying to God. These are things that we do, and we are passively filled with the, the so Spirit. The surrender and the obedience. Like Absolutely. Then the other thing was Isaiah 1, 9. Isaiah. Where it says, your, though your sins are like scarlet. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it says. Isaiah 1, 9. Let me read it, too, so we keep it in context. Oops, went too far. We, Hedico brought in some stuff. If anybody wants it, before you leave, take a look in the box, and if there's something you want, grab it and 
If not, then she'll take it to work and give it to people here. But I see a one. All right, I think it's one eight maybe is what I'm thinking of. Uh, no, it's not that either. Anyway, um, uh, 118. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. 118. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. It says, if you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It doesn't matter where you go in scripture. It's always going to be based on obedience. Always. And for us, obedience is calling on Jesus. And then it's getting to know his word. Man, how can you be obedient if you don't know what the word says? So then you're allowing. Absolutely. That's right. It's a passive action. Always remember that. Good example. I use this all the time. It's a good way for you to remember. Hedico and I are married. Poor Hedico. But she's never going to get more married to me, ever. But she can get more of me as I yield to her. Right? I can close myself off and we can be completely separate from each other and we're still married. We're no less married. But if I open myself up, yield to her, she's going to get more of me. Right? That's how the spirit works. Okay. So uh, verse 15, 14. Okay, it's titled in my book, Paul the Minister to the Gentiles, not Peter. Not Peter. <laughs> I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. Okay, they use a different word here instead of instruct, they say admonish one another. Yeah, excuse me. For the most part, Paul has given the bulk of his epistle of doctrine, and he has given words of instruction. We're almost done with it. His benediction of verse 13 has been uttered, and now he begins a lengthy closing statement. We're in 1514, and he's got to go all the way through 16 in his closing, so we got a lot of closing to go. However, it is not without further instruction and doctrine. It is mingled, among other things, with special reflections, personal requests, and words of encouragement and greeting to individuals. He's got all kinds of stuff tossed into chapter 16 in particular. Having spent so much time on the issue of disputable matters, and the necessity to develop and maintain harmony within the church concerning those things, he tactfully provides today's verse. He says, now I am confident concerning you, my brethren. He is heard of the church, which remember he's writing to Rome. He hasn't yet been there. He has given them instruction, and now he is encouraging them by acknowledging that they are capable of handling all the points of doctrine that they have received as well as being able to handle the disputable matters which exist, okay? That's what all of chapter 14 and most of 15 was on, disputable matters. How do we keep a bond between us despite those things? To these brethren, and in full confidence of this, he tells them that you are one, full of goodness. They will be willing to properly and tactfully respond to the weaknesses of others without judgment in matters which are not of a doctrinal weight and importance. Instead of their goodness, it will shine forth and make adjustments in these issues. Their goodness, which is in them, will make adjustments for the weaknesses in others. Remember, he's talking about things like dietary. There's nothing in the Bible that says that you have to eat certain foods. There's nothing in the Bible that says you are not to eat certain foods. I'm talking about in the Bible for us. I'm not talking about in the Old Testament where they had limitations on them. They did. Those are annulled in Christ. I, I, I just don't, you know what? I'm surprised. I brought up that thing about, um, you saw the prophecy update. Did you watch it? Okay. So, you know, I talked about doctrine in there. 
I don't look at numbers, but usually when I talk about doctrine, I lose subscribers. I don't care. It doesn't bother me at all. If people don't want to hear doctrine. If they want their ears tickled, they can watch a thousand other prophecy updates. It doesn't bother me one iota. But I talked about it, and I didn't get any nasty emails this week. I didn't get one nasty email. Yeah. Now, there may be posts on YouTube. I do not read those. I don't. I just, I don't. If somebody posts something nasty on YouTube, you know what? Just don't post it all. You just, you're just mouthing off and, you know, whatever. But I, I was fully expecting to have a bunch of people send me a lot of nasty. Didn't get one. I was so excited. Thank you, Lord. It just made my day because, you know what? You know, and I, anyway, I just, it, it was very nice to not have a bunch of Hebrew Roots people send me emails and say that I'm going to heck because I eat pork or because of whatever stupid thing they want. I've had that happen so many times. I can't tell you how many times that kind of things have happened, you know, and what do you do? You just sit there and you stew. I can't tell you to go. I, I don't want to make her miserable. So I sit there and I stew at people sending these things. Read your Bible and then you can quote them. Hebrews 7, Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10 and just show them. That's why I did that there is because I figure if I'm going to bring up this issue, I'm going to read the Bible and defend it. Maybe that's why they didn't. Why it's do because they still watch you? That's what I don't get. Listen, there is one guy, I don't know if he still watches or not, but he was a Reformed theologian, right? And he was there every single week for the two or three years that I read the uh, comments. And I finally, I thought, hey, that's my question. Why would you watch something you so vehement? And I think it's because people want to have a reason to argue. And so they go to sites and they just want to argue with people because they want to show how smart they are. That's the only thing I can think. Because if you don't agree with somebody, why would you watch their video? Let's not worry about that now. One, full of goodness. Two, filled with knowledge. They were already established in Christ. That's Romans 1, 8. Okay. And now Paul has instructed them in the issues necessary to elevate them to right doctrine in the areas they may have been lacking. As an apostle, Romans 1, 1, remember he said, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he has carefully submitted a thoughtful and majestic epistle of instruction on how to handle matters of both doctrinal weight and importance and those of lesser weight and which are disputable in nature. He's gone through the entire spectrum. Everything you can think of, man, he has thrown it in except the kitchen sink. He has really filled this thing full of doctrine, weighty matters and lesser matters. This knowledge is sufficient to the task of building them into an effective and mature body of believers. Three, he says, able also to admonish one another through their knowledge and with an assistance of a written epistle, which they can hold on to and they can refer to for instruction, in which we to this day are still reading and holding on to and referring to. They are now able to correct one another in doctrinal deficiencies and also to decide what matters are doubtful. Knowledge in those matters, which are weighty in nature, will keep the congregation on a sound footing and away from heresy, licentiousness, and apostasy. Those matters, which are of less moment, can be addressed from a loving standpoint, hopefully, where the weaker will grow to a state of strength and stronger, will be stronger, and be kept from haughtiness or arrogance when dealing with the weaker in the body. And that's what you would hope. Not everybody develops that way. Some people stay in a basic state all of their walk with Christ. What a shame, but that's their choice, okay? Everybody's got their own walk. Everybody's got to make their own decisions. How important is this to me? I got to tell you what, I am so excited to listen to that audio Bible every day. I, I just, I, I just am so excited to sit there and listen. Like I said, last week I was in the the class and i think i said i'm up to two samuel i was up to one samuel two anyway so now i'm in two samuel 
and I'm just enjoying it so much. Every single little detail that you hear processes differently than when you read it. And then when you throw in the background stuff, it's marvelous. I'm really, really, and you know what's happened almost every time, maybe not every time, I'm probably gone through what, 12 or 15 CDs by now, I don't know. Almost every time, you know that it's ending because this one little bit of music comes up, goes and says, and I be live. And that means it's the end of that CD. It's time to change it. Almost every single time that's happened, I've been stopped. And so I don't have to rush and try to do it while I'm driving. So I just put in the new one, turn off the car and go in. It happened right over here when I was getting Kringles today. It's like the Lord knows that I'm going to get myself in an accident rushing to get the next. Oh, yeah. I'm so thankful that happened. So. Oh, it's the little things that look at my hair standing up just talking about it. I am really enjoying this audio Bible. I never thought that I would like it the way I do. I'm really enjoying it. Um, okay, so where were we? Um, uh, yeah, uh, haughtiness, arrogance when dealing with the weaker in the body. In essence, the goodness, which he cites, the goodness in them will keep from damaging the faith of the weaker as well inciting egotism in the stronger. At the same time, the knowledge is their source of correct instruction for the weaker in the faith. The admonishment is the effective means of instruction in a way which should avoid the pitfalls he is so carefully and exactingly warned against. So you have the goodness, you've got the knowledge, and you've got the admonishment. Each one of them has a place in the working of the church. The example of Christ is to be remembered in it all. And that example, as he summed up just before his benediction, is one which is equally bearing on Jew and on Gentile. With God, there's no favoritism. And only through acceptance of the state of one another and a loving display of that acceptance will the congregation truly reflect his example. Life application. Doctrine matters in tenets of weight. Acceptance matters in differences uh, uh, in matters with of disputable issues, goodness as a bridge to effectively use knowledge and admonishment should come about with that attitude of goodness. In all, in all of this, remember the example of Christ is paramount. Read that goodness again, please. The first one, uh, the full of goodness. Well, you, you gave it what it was. Oh, okay, in essence, the goodness in them will keep from damaging the faith of the weaker as well as inciting egotism in the stronger. At the same time, the knowledge is their source of correct instruction for the weaker in the faith. You have knowledge, you're going to correct the weaker in the faith. And the admonishment is the effective means of instruction in a way which should avoid the pitfalls he is so carefully and exactingly warned against. Is that what you were looking for? Well, Romans 2, 4 says the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Right. The goodness of God. Right. So I was thinking in terms of goodness in that. That this goodness was the, the spirit working in you. Right. And, and uh, what I got from your definition of goodness there didn't exactly. Fit. Well, I'm not God, too. So uh, God is good. And what he's doing is, is in one thing. But my goodness in the church, I think, you know, this is what I type. It will keep them from damaging the faith of the weaker as well as inciting egotism in the stronger. Yeah. So that's what he's saying. He says here, um, uh, now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in, oh wait, what verse are we in? Where, verse, what, what is it? 14. 14. Okay, now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, you are also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to, able also to admonish one another. See, full of goodness is... Right, to be full of goodness, and that means basically to be charitable to one another. 
Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Not the spirit. I wouldn't equate the goodness there with the spirit at all. If he if he was equating with the spirit, he'd say be filled with the spirit or let your life be guided by the spirit. He would explicitly say it. So what does the goodness in Romans two four mean then? Well, we'd have to go back and read Romans two four. You need to click onto that video and watch it. That's what you need to do because I ain't got those notes here today. Okay, Romans fifteen fifteen. I have written you quite boldly on some points. As if to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me. Okay, very close in this one. This one says given to me by God, but they just change it around like that. You know, I love doing that to people. When they uh, send me something now, because I've gotten a commentary like on the book of Ephesians, they'll say, well, what what, what, what does Ephesians 5 whatever mean? And I'll say, oh, I've got that. And I'll just send the link to the Ephesians commentary. And I'll say, if you have any more questions, email me. It saves so much time. <laughs> Man, I'm t it's a lot of work. I mean, that's the first thing I do every morning. I get up, I take two of the dogs out that have to go out. And then after that, I, by that time, the coffee is hot. So I pour that and I go sit down, I read the Bible. And as soon as I'm done reading the Bible, that is what I do is type the next commentary. Post today's and I type the next one because it's quiet. There's no distractions. And it takes, you know, from 15 minutes to an hour and a half. It just depends on... on <laughs> the content but the more that i type the less i have to answer questions later and boy i'm telling you what that is the that is the best so because where do you have that is that on the site where it's got everything two sites i got it on the superior word website and i've got them on the wonderful one website hebrews is not on the wonderful one website because it's not done the day that it's done i just post the entire thing to that site too and then if somebody wants to read just one commentary i send them to the superior word site if they want to read you know like what does galatians 5 have to do with galatians 3 i'll say well here go read the commentary and it's you know 300 pages long knock yourself out whatever I, you know i've done the work i'm not i'm not gonna you know if you have a question after you've read this we'll get into it but that's my commentary this is what i believe about these verses so yeah, it's just so much easier. The more that you've done, the less you have to do in life, I think. That's true. Okay, 1515, go ahead. Uh, I think I wrote it. I read it. Oh, yeah, you read it. Okay, so here we go. I'll read mine because it's a little different, not much. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written more boldly to you on some points as reminding you because of the grace of God, grace given to me by God. Okay, 1515. Paul had just said this to the Romans in the previous verse. Now I'm confident concerning you, my brethren, that you are also full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and also able to admonish one another. You know what? I'm certain that my goodness is correct, because if you look at the context, look at the context, goodness, okay, then he says filled with knowledge, able to admonish one another. They're all speaking about interrelationships with one another. So I'm certain my comment is correct on that. The goodness of Romans 2 is speaking of God's goodness in a different context, 100%. Is it Romans 2 you said? Whatever. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So that's what he said in the previous verse. Having said this, he now states, nevertheless, he will make a firm addition to the kind words which he just spoke and the thought he is about to impart. In essence, despite my confidence in your abilities and in you and your abilities, I have something to say. That's the intent of what he's doing here. I have more boldly, I have written more boldly to you on some points is what Paul writes to us. I have written more boldly to you on some points. He acknowledges that despite their knowledge and ability to discern what is correct and to pass it on to others, he is engaged in some very strong and weighty issues in a way which was quite forthright and which could possibly even be considered overbearing to the recipients. And he did this on some points, as he writes, right? The term here is apomeros. 
it is actually debated as to what he's referring to. Two options are considered by most scholars. One, some of the points noted in his epistles were direct and forthright, or two, he was direct and forthright to a portion of the letter's recipients, meaning Jew or Gentile, or possibly the weaker in the faith or the stronger brethren. Because at times during Romans, he's writing to the Jew. There's no doubt about it. You owe Jew, he says. And then he says something, and it's obviously only pointing to the Gentiles when he's speaking about the Jews. He can't be speaking about the Jews when he's speaking, you know, about them. So he's speaking to the Gentiles. So it could be one or the other. He is either in his epistles, direct and forthright, or a forthright, he's direct and forthright to a portion of the letter's recipients, Jew or Gentile, etc. Okay, and people will debate which is he referring to in this particular context. Either way, Paul's words were not intended as a bold rebuke, but rather as bold instruction. Were they a rebuke, he certainly would have been, would not have been as generous in his wording of the previous verse where he talked about goodness and etc. Okay, so though bold, he desires it to be known that his words were simply a way of reminding the Roman church because of the grace given to him by God. He was writing about the grace given to him by God. He had stated his apostleship, defended his calling, and noted that as the appointed apostle to the Gentiles, he was serving in a priestly role to them. He was providing the instruction of God to the people of God, including clarification of spiritual matters, which is exactly what the priests and then the Levites were told to do. You know, they would be the ones to help people understand the things of God when they were spread out around Israel. This was the role of the priestly class in the Old Testament, and he has been called to this role in the New. He's giving them the instruction. He's giving them the clarification. He's helping them out with these spiritual matters. I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to take you to, I think it's 1 Peter. I'm just taking just one second because it kind of bears on what he was speaking about. Said, um, let's see, oops, gone too far. 2 Peter, I think it's 1 Peter. It might, is it 2 Peter where he speaks about Paul? Peter uh, uh, Burke? Is he speaking about Paul? 1 or 2 Peter? I think. I, okay, you look, uh, you look somewhere and I'll look somewhere. And I just want to find, uh, he's speaking about... Uh, Oh, yeah. Hang on. Beloved, this is the second time I'm writing to you. And he speaks about Paul. Oh, here it is right here. Um, 2 Peter 3, and we'll go down to 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also to the rest of scriptures. Okay, that's kind of what Paul's referring to here. He's saying that I'm writing these things, they're difficult, and he's trying to sh show them that he's giving them the instructions. And it's so easy to take what Paul has said and to either deny it or to twist it and manipulate that's why we've got ten thousand different denominations in the world and we got people that completely ignore paul they say well he's he's not uh you know god's chosen man or they go through all kinds of crazy things to avoid the truth of what paul is saying and he's very clear he's the apostle to the gentiles this is the gentile-led church the jews had their chance they did not accept it it was moved over to us and there's a time where we're going to be taken out of here yes i believe in a rapture as kooky as people think that sounds I believe in it. It's not because, you know, it's not like flat earth cosmology where people are arguing against evidence. 
when we talk about six-day creation, we're not arguing against evidence. The evidence is actually not there for long-term cosmology. You could argue that it is based on how far away the stars are and how long it takes for the uh, light to get to us, but you can also argue that God put everything in its place exactly as the Bible said, and so the light from the star was a part of what he created. Put the star out there, and everything is timed exactly as if it had been there for billions of years, and yet it had been there just a second before. I have no problem with that. I, the example I give all the time is Adam. Adam went to get his driver's license, and he couldn't because he was a day old, but he looked 30 years old. Okay, The evidence does not suggest that we have been here that long. It looks like it may be, but if you think about it from God's perspective of what his word says, nothing contradicts that, unlike flat earth cosmology. Flat earth cosmology is just simply refusing to accept what the Bible actually says. And they take verses out of context. And uh, it, uh, anyway, I don't understand that. I, well, I don't either, you know, but it, it, it just goes back to people wanting to believe that things are not um, set. <laughs> they want to believe that the government has issues and that the government is trying to control them. And that's one of the ways that they say that. But, you know, you have to go back and you have to think, they say, well, NASA is a conspiracy and they developed all, no, 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 just listen to the logic. They will say this. They'll say that NASA is a conspiracy and that they are trying to cover up that the earth is flat. Well, that would make, wait, just wait. That would make sense maybe, unless you went back and you looked at the people before NASA and you go back even farther to the people like Galileo and then you go back to Aristotle. All of these people held to the same conclusion. Right. All of them held to the same conclusion. So this would have had to have been a three or four thousand year conspiracy to come to this conclusion that the earth is in fact flat. Okay. There was a time where people thought it was flat and that was because of people misinterpreting the Bible. Remember, they thought, what was his name? Columbus got on the uh, ship and they said, well, you might go off the end. Well, that's because they thought that the earth was the center of the universe, right? That was a misreading of scripture. And that's what the Catholic church told Galileo you have to recant of this because if you don't, we're going to burn you at the stake. He had said that there's planets out there and we are not the center of the universe. We are re revolving around the sun. And he actually had to recant of that, right? So it was the church that was misreading and now they've completely turned that upside down. But as far as these things that are in scripture that are obvious and that are clear, people really have to do a lot of work to deny what Paul says. They have to do a lot of work to deny the sound doctrines of scripture. Jesus, deity, I mean, how many times? We're in Romans, I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 4 now with the epistles, because I'm typing 5 right now. Anyway, um, I, we've probably seen Jesus' deity either explicitly or implicitly stated 15 times already in three chapters. It's just amazing, but people will deny it. They have a presupposition. They will not let go of it. Anyway, let's get back to the conference. They what? That he's not God. They're saying Jesus is not God. They are. Yeah, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, or the Mormons. He was a man who became God. The what? Oh, many times in Hebrews. Absolutely. Many times already. It's going to be all the way through it because he is. I mean, you have to twist scripture to such an extent to come to the conclusion that the core doctrines that have been held by the church all along are not true, that you truly are a heretic. I mean, there's just, there's no way around it to say that the Trinity is not taught in scripture. So the word Trinity isn't used. Original sin isn't used, rapture isn't used, but they're doctrines which are taught in the Bible. The Trinity is taught in the Bible, 100%. So then read John 1. Uh, read John 1, but so once again, people will twist that as well. Go ahead. But 
Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Yeah, they, well, guess what? We're sons of God, too. Okay, but they don't believe in his... They, they don't believe that he right. is deity. Right. Okay, they don't believe that he is deity. But And they will use something like, well, we're sons of God, and they take verses out of the Old Testament and the New, and they manipulate them. They twist them. It's it's a sad I thing. Think, anyway. I think when, they, when I listen to Gordon, if he prays, he's doing it. I don't know if you agree with me. If he says grace, he does it in such a way that he, it makes it sound like he's trying to be like us. It could be. Yeah, but I... I well, let, I, let's talk about that yeah, later. Okay, we need to get back into Romans. Good. All right, yeah. I, I understand it's a point of concern with you, and you know, but there's a point yeah. where... Okay, so here we go. Um, uh, I have written more boldly on you in some... Okay, I got that. Okay, so either way, those two points that I just went through, either way, Paul's words were not intended as a rebuke, but as bold instruction. Were they rebuke, he certainly wouldn't have been as generous in his wording of the previous verse. Though bold, he desires it to be known that his words were simply a way of reminding the Roman church because of the grace got, given to him by God. He had stated his apostle. Oh, I've read all of this, haven't I? Um, yeah, he stated his apostleship, defended his calling, and noted that as the appointed apostle to the Gentiles, he was serving in a priestly role to them. Okay, I know I've gone through this. I'm going through it really quickly again. He was providing instruction for of God to the people of God, including clarification of spiritual matters. This was the priestly, the role of the priestly class in the Old Testament as he had been called to this role in the New. Okay, so that's where I went into Peter and where Peter was saying that people are twisting these things. Okay, it should be noted that in times past, he could not have been given these duties. Why? Paul could not have been given these duties. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. And the priestly class is from Levi. So he could not have been given the duties that he is writing right now. Another indication right there that the Hebrew Roots movement is wrong. Okay? Because he couldn't be doing these things. We would not have people from other tribes doing what they're doing here. Okay? So it just dawned on me right there. But anyway, the tribe of Benjamin, priestly duties were once only given to the tribe of Levi. Especially the Aaronic priesthood, which was taken out of the the family of Kohath, okay? And then all of the other Levites served the priestly class, okay? But in Christ, who descended in his human genealogy from Judah, a new order of priesthood had come about. As John states to the believers in Romans 1, 5 and 6, without distinction of tribe or nationality, he said to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So here we are, we're a kingdom of priests. That could not have happened under the old covenant. Once again, the old covenant is done. It is done. It just, I, it, if people can't get that one right, it's very sad because everything else follows along with that. It's like getting Israel wrong. Once you get Israel wrong, what happens? Everything else follows along. And all of a sudden, we've replaced Israel. We are Israel. Blah, blah. So you get one small portion of a major doctrine wrong, and you're on that. Everything else from that point on will be off. Everything. Everything will be swayed by that one decision. We are Israel. Israel's out. Now, everything about your theology is going to take that. If you say that we do not have free will, which is taught clearly in Scripture from the first page all the way to the last, if you say that we don't have free will, Every single point of your doctrine from that point on will be skewed. Every one of them on that particular doctrine. I'm not talking about all doctrines. I'm talking about that doctrine. And the same is true here. If you say that the old covenant is standing in any way, shape, or form, 
as people, you know, they had a prophecy conference here recently, and uh, some of these prophecy teachers were up there and saying that the last three feasts of the Lord are waiting to be fulfilled in Israel. If you say that, then every single point of every single point of your eschatology, which means the study of last things, every single point of your eschatology is going to be off. Everything. And the reason why is because they are not feasts of Israel. They are feasts of the Lord. If people can't get that right, and they say that these are going to be fulfilled in Israel, every single other part of their eschatology is going to be wrong. You have to make sure that you get that right. And it's very unfortunate that that's being taught because these are great people. They love the Lord. They support Israel. You know, they give fun prophecy updates every week. But when they teach something like that, every single other thing that they say is going to be suspect in the doctrine of eschatology. You have to make sure that you understand that the law is fulfilled and that no part of it is left unfulfilled. When Daniel 9 says that there are seven more years for Israel, it's part of the law of Moses, I'm sorry, the law in itself that it is going to happen, but it does not mean that it is what God wants. It means that it is what is going to happen because God has said this is going to happen to lead them to Christ, not to lead them into a continuation of the old covenant, but to lead them to Christ. The law is fulfilled completely. Everybody got that? There's a difference between the two. Okay, so um, where are we? Um, as John states and to the believers in Revelation 1, 5 and 6, without distinction of tribe or nationality, I read that, we are a kingdom of priests. He has washed us from his own blood and has made us kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Paul certainly then filled this priestly role within the confines of the new covenant, and he did so by the grace of God given to him. In this position of grace and in fulfillment of his priestly duties, he imparted his knowledge boldly in an effort to keep the body of believers on the right track concerning their doctrine and their practice. Life uh, application, we're going to get one more and we'll be done for the day. This is going to be a long one. Uh, life application, Paul is the New Testament's appointed apostle to the Gentiles. He's called that, I think, three or four times explicitly and implicitly a bit too. It is his instruction to which the church is to adhere to during this dispensation. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for our instruction and edification, but Paul's writings are the authoritative standard for church-age doctrine and practice. We dismiss Paul's words at the expense of a properly operating and effective body of believers. Does anybody disagree with that? If you disagree with that, then there's a problem. And you say, well, then why are you preaching out of Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus and Numbers? We it's the foundation, right? People can say whatever they want about us being in the Old Testament, but when we tie them week after week after week into the fulfilled work of Christ, as explained by Paul, we're doing the right thing. Okay, 1516. Be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's pretty close. All right, Paul provides an enormous amount of detail in this verse. He just stated that he has been bold in some points as a reminder to the Romans, and then he said this was due to the grace given to me by God. He now explains that grace, its substance, and how it has worked out. He shares that this included that he might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Let me make a note right there. The word he uses for minister isn't the normal one that we might think of, which is a diakonos. Diakonos. Rather, it is the word 
Torgan. I know I might have pronounced that wrong, but Le Torgan. Does anybody hear something close? Torgan? Liturgy. Okay, yeah. It is a word used only five times in the New Testament. One example is in Romans 13, 6, which is speaking of the governing authorities in the civilian world. Another example, though, is found in Hebrews 8, 2. In this instance, it is referring to Jesus, the high priest and minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. Paul is showing that his apostleship is a ministry of such weight for the Gentiles. He is a superintending governor in doctrinal matters, and his ministry is executed in the form of a priest on the behalf of the Gentiles. This is evident from the context which he will continue to reveal. In his priestly role, his work for is for the purpose of ministering the gospel of God. Again, a word is introduced which provides the context. Ministering here is the word heroganta. This is its only use in the New Testament, and it refers to doing temple work or performing sacred rites. These are duties only a priest of the Old Testament would accomplish. Everybody understand this? Only a priest would have done these. Tribe of Benjamin was not the priestly class. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. Obviously, we're under a new order of things. It's obvious, okay? Um, where was I? Um, yeah, uh, okay. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Yeah, only, uh, I lost my place. Okay, this is its only use in the New Testament. It refers to doing the temple work or performing sacred rites. These duties only of a priest of the Old Testament would accomplish, and yet he from the tribe of Benjamin had been granted this right. This demonstrates the certainty that the previous covenant is set aside in Christ, and a new order of priests and priestly duties has been initiated. Paul's ministry then is the gospel of God. The work of God in Christ is the very thing which makes the Gentiles acceptable to God. They are justified and sanctified, not through temple sacrifices and offerings, but through the finished work of Jesus Christ at Calvary's cross. It is through his work and the ministering of Paul that the offering, as he says, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable. Here again is another word demonstrating the greatness of what has occurred. The word offering is prosphora an offering to God. This would be comparable to a sacrifice or offering made in the temple during the law. In Hebrews 10 verse 8, the same word is used in a manner referring to those Old Testament offerings in which the Lord did not desire nor had pleasure in them. Remember he said in the Old Testament, yeah, sacrifice and offerings, I didn't, okay, there you go. And then in Hebrews 10 10, it says that all believers have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In this word, in this verse, the word prosphora is used referring to the body of Christ. So the body of Christ is that offering, and here's this is what Paul is saying about his offering, this prosphora. It's an offering to God. As can be seen here, the Gentiles have now actually become an offering to God because of the work of Christ, sanctified through what he has accomplished. It is through this great work that the Holy Spirit is available to do exactly that the part of sanctification. Although it would appear to the Jews coming out of the Old Covenant that this would be impossible, it is the very heart of the work of Christ that together Jew and Gentile are found acceptable through him. As an object lesson in this, the book of Acts notes the conversion of Cornelius and his household. When the Holy Spirit came down on them, it seemed incredible to the Jews. But in the end, it notes they glorified God saying, 
then God has also grant, granted to the Gentiles repentance of life. So there you go. Wonderful stuff there. Life application. We're going to finish a couple minutes early because we got something to do in the back room that uh, the people online, I'm sorry, are not invited to. I brought in something from uh, uh, Southeast Asia, which it's actually grown in Florida because they people brought seeds from them. And they anybody here ever had jackfruit before? It's not durian. Don't worry. Anybody here had jackfruit? You can buy it in the store in cans. What? It's a big, big thing. It, it gets huge. Yeah, it gets very big. It's uh, You can buy it in the store in cans. Don't bother. You won't get the taste. It smells like bubblegum. It tastes like bubblegum. It's really wonderful. And they'll get, they're so big sometimes, they will grow out of the base of the trees. It'll just start growing. And it'll grow the size of half of, a, a, a you know, a, the trunk of a car. They can get that big. Or if they hang from the branches, they might get about this big. Um, well, they grow right here in Sarasota. Oh. Yeah, there's a lady that has them. But anyway, we're going to have that while everybody else is uh, going on to other things. So let's lead a, read a life application, and then we're going to have some jackfruit. Um, through the work of Christ, Gentiles are now an acceptable offering to God. The sealing of the Holy Spirit is evidence of this. The Spirit is given upon belief and without any other thing being necessary. If God has justified the sinner and sanctified him by the Holy Spirit then how can we wage war against what God has done? Remember I said that last week, if God has accepted somebody, how can we wage war against that? It's his decision. It's not ours. So we shouldn't be doing that. Um, yeah, we, we better close because uh, I know what will happen is we'll get into another one. and we'll, I, Freda doesn't drive it in the dark and it's going to get dark soon. And so I want to make sure that she gets some of her jackfruit. So. It is. It's coming on. And I do not want you to, to miss this. So that's why we're doing that. I'm not blaming you. I'm just saying that we have to be courteous to you because I know that it's getting dark here quickly. So we're going to say a prayer. We're going to get out of here. Don't forget and, uh, the lady next door. I have no idea why he popped in. Oh, yes, I shall. Yeah, okay. Yeah, he's having, she's having some personal problems. We'll pray for her. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to uh, uh, come and have this class. We thank you for the uh, jackfruit, which is just ahead. It's not the king of fruit, but it certainly is close second. And so we look forward to that. And Lord, we once again lift up those we mentioned at the beginning of the class. And we also lift up the uh, gentleman next door who asked for us to pray for his wife. And we would uh, ask that you would be with him during their time of difficulty and uh, that you would just hear our prayer and hear his prayer, respond to it. And may they uh, uh, come to the end of the uh, trials that they are facing. And Lord, we thank you. We love you. We glorify you for all your goodness in our lives. You are so good to us. And we praise you and exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, back this up. Okay, break.